Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Now, it's been 30 years since I first learned about orthopedic testing for the assessment of the low back. Some of those tests are still staples in my examination today, but certainly the majority of what I learned are not part of my routine repertoire. Of course, a lot has changed in our understanding of uh, these tests over the years, particularly with regards to sensitivity and specificity. What's even more interesting is how an orthopedic test can be utilized as a therapeutic intervention rather than just a pre and post test. And so we enter the world of neurodynamics. A leading expert in the field of neurodynamics is researcher and musculoskeletal physiotherapist, Michael Shacklock. He'll be one of our, the keynote speakers at the ACA Sports Symposium in Adelaide this year. And I'm delighted to welcome him on the ACA podcast today. Now, just some background on Michael. He graduated with a physiotherapy degree in 1980 from Auckland University of Technology and a Diploma of Advanced Manipulative Therapy in 1989 from the University of South Australia. He's founder of the Neurodynamics Approach in Manual Therapy in 1995 and is a PhD candidate at the University of Eastern Finland. The title of his thesis, Transient Non-Invasive Reduction of Force in the Lumbar Nerve Root and the Physical Treatment of Acute Sciatica from Lumbar Disc Protrusion and Radiculopathy. He's the winner of multiple awards, published in multiple prestigious journals, authored books including Clinical Neurodynamics in 1995, and consulted for international sporting teams such as the Chicago Bulls, Liverpool and Manchester Football Clubs. Hi Michael, welcome to the ACA Podcast. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak here. It's a great opportunity and a real pleasure. Perhaps we can start by having a chat uh, about what neurodynamics actually is. That's a really good question because it's not well understood in the physical health sciences anyway. Um, it, it, there are some misconceptions attached to it, but I'll, I'll just define it as um, in, in our context. So if we were to look at the, the way other disciplines use the word neurodynamics, you could go to psychiatry and they talk about the neurodynamics of personality development, for instance. And so that's not the area that I'm referring to. Uh, I'm referring to um, just the physical health side of things, which is uh, chiropractic, physical therapy, exercise, movement, uh, and so forth, physical health. Um, so for me, neurodynamics is it's about the connection between mechanics and physiology of the nervous system. So I define it as mechanics and physiology of the nervous system as they relate to each other. And now, that's a theoretical thing in that there's, there's research to support all this, of course, but um, that's only a, a, a way of constructing or using the knowledge. It's not actually 
um, a, a therapeutic approach. I call that the therapeutic approach, clinical neurodynamics, which would yeah. be a clinic application of mechanics and physiology as they relate to each other, but they're also integrated with the musculoskeletal system. And to me, that's the critical part because we're MSK practitioners. Um, and, and one of my frustrations has been that uh, health practitioners have been mobilizing the nervous system in, iso- in isolation. We're trying to, and, and it's it to me that's a, a good part, but it's it's limited because we're only treating the nervous system, and, and really in our context, the nervous system responds to the musculoskeletal, and usually the musculoskeletal is what causes the problems in the nerve. So from there, we do integrative uh, approaches where, where we're trying to combine treat diagnosis and treatment to both systems. So then is clinical neurodynamics, are the tests that you use completely different or is this just a different way of looking at already established orthopedic tests? Yes, okay. For example, um, the straight leg raise, which is the world's most performed neurodynamic test and the oldest, I might say, um, it, it is, is a, it's sort of focused on, on nerve, of course, but to me... Um, that, that's only a test, and, and if we want to make a diagnosis, we, we know now that, that a straight leg raise or any neurodynamic test is not actually a medical test. It's a physical test that might relate to some medical diseases and pathologies, but it doesn't always. So the connection mm-hmm. between disease pathology and, and neurodynamic tests is not direct. So we come up to the idea, come to the idea of, uh, look, a physical test uh, in, in relation to the straight leg raising, you know, other neurodynamic tests, they are actually a test that extracts a certain kind of patient with a musculoskeletal problem. Now, in some people, it's a perfectly normal response. So they are then if they are excluded from a neurodynamics treatment approach. Mm-hmm. But other people have an, have an abnormal neurodynamics uh, response. So then at that point, we can't exclude them, but we're certainly, certainly not including them yet because we need to understand why that test is abnormal, which then relates to musculoskeletal diagnosis and treatment. And so I, I would advocate not considering them in isolation again. Um, so, so you do a neurodynamic test, and the, it's, it's like an email. You get an email which says, congratulations, you found an abnormal neurodynamic response. Click the link for more information. Yes. And that's really what it means. Well, in 2016, you published a very interesting paper on the slump test, and I think this is probably the perfect example for us to tease this idea of um, what happens when we click next next, and what we need to uh, be looking for. Perhaps um, if we start with this test and maybe just a backtrack, I'm sure our listeners are very familiar with the slump test, but maybe we can start by just um, going over what makes a slump test and, and what the important uh, features of that test are. Right. So the slump test developed um, uh, actually partly from Syriacs, partly from Brieg and Duncan Troop and Maitland, and then David Butler popularised it and developed it further as well, with, and to some extent Robert Elvey as well. Um, now, the, the, what makes it interesting or important is that it's beyond a straight leg raise. Um, a straight leg raise moves the lumbar nerve roots inside the nerve distally in the pelvis, and at the end point, it, it provo- applies tension. Um, but with the slump, the, so the resting position of the nerve roots and therefore cord is different from the straight leg raise compared to the slump test. 
Now, if you imagine that you have an elastic cord and you're holding it at both ends and you hold one hand stable, but pull the cord in one direction, and uh, you'll notice that, you, that there's a stretch and there's a partial movement along the course of that nerve. And so if you marked the nerve, that mark would move, would displace in the direction of your pull. Mm. But if you do, if you do the same thing, except you, um, you extend the cord equal and oppositely from both hands, yes. you see the mark, your mark on the nerve does not move. Right. So the resting position is different between straight leg raise and slump, and so is the tension. Yes. And so the, the slump is the two hands, the, yep. the straight leg raise is the one hand. So yep. I, I know that while those who have followed psychosocial aspects of back pain for years would have would known know about Waddle's work on, on fear avoidance and so forth. There is one test where the person looks down as their leg is being raised, um, and if they if that that is a better movement than the straight leg raise, then that's an indicator of psychosocial mechanisms because it's a discrepancy from physical behaviour. But actually. That's not always the case because sometimes you can do a straight leg raise, which is much more uncomfortable than the slump test because of the difference in position of the nerves at the end of each test. Yes. And if you've got an, an underhook, if you think of Stu McGill's work, that the straight leg raise might actually be more provoked, provocative than the slump test for someone who has an underhook. Can I give an analogy, and you tell me if I've got this right, so uh, in terms of comparing the straight leg raise to the slump, if we think of a, a tug of war and a, a red ribbon right in the, mirror, uh, the middle, uh, a straight leg raise is like one team is pulling and you see the red ribbon move across, and a, uh, a slump test might be two equally strong teams are pulling at both ends and there's a whole lot of tension there, but the red ribbon doesn't move. Would that be a fair analogy? That's a perfect analogy. Yes, absolutely perfect, and and it reflects the difference in in the biomechanics of of the two tests. Yes. So then, maybe just before we get into the um, asymptom or the symptomatic uh, or problem uh, patient, what what is the normal anatomy? What what happens to the the cord with those two tests? We see we actually see the spinal cord move down with the straight leg raise, but there isn't a movement, just a stretching and an increased tension. Then in the in the slump, is that correct? That's right. There's less. There's certainly less displacement and more elongation. So it's more stress, more stress and strain, but less displacement. Yeah, great. And, and so let's get back then. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but that's the, so the key features with performing the slump test uh, now, and particularly in terms of um, neck movement. I know some uh, professionals forget about, or maybe misunderstand, what the difference might be in the nervous system between flexion and extension there. Mm, yeah, so if we extend our neck, we just reduce tension between the, the cervicals, the cervical spinal cord and, and the lumbar nerve roots. Um, but if we flex it, um, the neck, the, they are drawn upward. And that's quite variable, of course, in, in, in the amount, but the mechanisms are universal, the same in, in all humans. So flexion of the neck moves the cord up, and if you pull it down again, you're doing a slump test with the legs. And you've also done cadaver studies on this that have shown something fairly interesting beyond just that they mm. go caudal if you pull them down. Something else happens on the contralateral side. Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, you're sort of you're priming me well here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, one of the um, my babies, if you will, over the years has been the idea that um, uh, we shouldn't just be mobilising nerves for neurodynamic problems because the logic is flawed in some people. Now, the logic is patient has severe pain, 
it's it's almost always caused by excessive load on the nervous system through usually lumbar region dyskinesia, usually not always. And and the, the neurodynamic treatment would be mobilize the nerve, but we're applying more force to a nerve that's already got excessive force. Mm. So for me, that's that's been a problem. It's it's probably suitable for people who can tolerate the force, so they're not as severely involved. But for people who who walk into your clinic with severe sciatica from lumbar problems, their primary concern is pain, and that's why they have lost function. And so if we can develop a new system or a new form of treatment with newly validated mechanisms to unload the nerves, then that is that is so cool for many people because then they can go home and help themselves to pain relief without opioids, safe and hopefully effective. So the logic in this line of studies that we did was that uh, based on some working models that I've made, um, that if you do a straight leg raise on one side, the cord will come down, of course, by following that ipsilateral set of nerve roots. But if you do a contralateral one as well, so it finishes as bilateral, the resting tension in the first nerve roots will reduce when you do a contralateral because the cord comes down further and provides slack into the tested nerve root side, the sides on uh, tested side uh, nerve roots. So the idea was that a contralateral neurodynamic test might reduce tension in an ipsilateral nerve root. So we for pain, and we, the objective here is to provide pain relief for patients, unload their nerve roots. So we studied it on different levels. Um, first was MRI in healthy subjects, looking at the displacement of the spinal cord um, in different situations, yes, reference positions, unilateral straight leg raise and bilateral straight leg raise. And the unilateral straight leg raise lowers the cord by about three and a half millimetres, but a bilateral is approximately seven millimetres. So out of it all, well, the physics works. Um, and so the idea was that if we can uh, attack one nerve roots on one side by using a contralateral, then this cord mechanism must be validated because if the cord displacement between unilateral and bilateral is the same, it doesn't cross over the midline. So mm. cord is what make, makes this difference transferable to the sides. So that was the first step, validate or investigate the validity of the idea that the cord moves differently between a bilateral and a unilateral straight raise, and we found that it did double the movement with bilateral. So that was good. good step one. Second step was um, in cadavers, um, or one of the other steps was in cadavers, apply a force to the lumbar nerve roots and see what the nerve root tissue, ne- neural tissue on the other side does. And we found that it was a relaxation of the dura nerve root sleeves, um, nerve roots as well, and the, even the film terminale became looser um, when we did a, a distal tension applied to the L5 lump nerve root. So that was visually validated, of course, validated, and then the final step was to see if it happened, if the normal response followed this change in tension of the nerve roots, and fortunately it did in conscious subject. So that's been validated on three levels now. And one of the nice things about science is that if another group studies the same subject and finds the same result and there's no communication between the groups, then that's it's independently validated. And that's also been found with the French anatomy group. Malheur and another other, uh, other group over there looked at cadavers and did this as well and found the same thing. So it's pretty um, satisfying to to show validity in a mechanism that we can now use to unload people's nerve roots for pain relief, which could be in some people a contralateral neurodynamic test. 
And I'm assuming that that doesn't matter on the timing, like you you don't have to do a unilateral and then a contralateral. It's If you do the contralateral, it should always be offloading on the affected side. Yeah, that's a really good clinical question because um, it's, yeah, it, in people who've got a lot of sciatica, loading their ipsilateral side to hurt to provoke their pain and then unloading it with the other side seems contradictory, which is true, it is, it's contradictory. So instead of pulling on the, the ipsilateral nerve roots with the neurodynamic test, you can just place the patient in a comfortable position as they wish, you know, lying on their back, usually with an externally rotated hip, and you can do a contralateral um, leg raise, usually about hip, hip knee 90 degrees on the contralateral side and you straighten the knee and that is bringing that brings a cord down and some people say that relieves their leg pain mm-hmm. and, and if that does that's an assessment now with all systems i think we should have inclusion and exclusion criteria and fortunately we have one here for neurodynamics which is if the contralateral leg raise provokes the sciatica on the ipsilateral side it's this our contralateral approach is excluded because it's provocative yes and that's not the objective and that's a crossed straight leg raise sign that's, that many people will be aware of. Yep. Um, so that's an exclusion criterion, but in some people you do a contralateral leg raise and it eases their leg pain, good. They're now in the system for a contralateral approach. And I'm assuming this applies equally to a straight leg raise or a slump with a straight leg raise. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> yep. Just a, a little sidebar, that, um, what about piriformis syndrome? Um, what are the, the validity of internally rotating that hip to stretch the piriformis or getting them to contract and actively um, mm. contract that muscle and looking for increased uh, sort of uh, pain or, or symptoms? Yes. Now, you, are you talking about uh, for piriformis syndrome or such like in your pelvis? Okay. Now, we know that, well, we believe that piriformis is an external rotator at angles below 60, 70 degrees hip flexion. And so active external rotation would be a load to nerve in the muscle. Passive in, internal would stretch the muscle onto the nerve. Mm-hmm. This is below 60, 70. And, but if you can do passive external rotation, you're passively shortening the piriformis muscle, which would reduce pressure on the sciatic nerve. And so you can start combining the biomechanics of the muscle to unload or load the nerve or even integrate them in the high-performance situation. So you've got got progressions and you're connecting mechanisms from MSK to nerve instead of just doing nerve. Right, fantastic. So that's an extra little bit that you'd be thinking about when you're um, giving them their rehab program. Uh, You'd be incorporating that extra little hip movement um, I want to talk you, um, you sort of mentioned before how, you know, a priority when patient is coming in with acute low back pain, of course, is their low back pain, um, and that's affecting their function significantly. And so the first thing to address is how can we, uh, I guess, offload the nerve. And then I'm assuming there'll be a progression where we're wanting them to tolerate loading of the nerve. Can you talk through that progression? Yes, of course. Yeah, it's a, this is, and, and uh, as I said, I'm saying with courses and stuff, um, the, the, if we have a system that has inclusion and exclusion criteria, diagnostic categories based on functional problems, disturbances, we have that in a lot of exercise and movement systems, and then we have progressions for each one of those, then we have an ability to include it accurately or exclude, and then progress um, people's um, 
rehab according to their mechanisms. And, and so progressions are really important. Um, and for that particular one, uh, someone with severe pain, you would unload with external rotation. You might even do a contralateral neurodynamic test in some people. And then as they start to tolerate pain, there's less radiation, more intermittent is the pain, they can move better. Then they start rehab, of course, which is load. And so part of neurodynamics or integrating MSK and nerve is a, gra is a graded exposure, if you will, to more and more appropriate loading, but safely. And, and so neurodynamics should be included in that rationale, and it can be. Fantastic. Um, you mentioned before sort of about um, the IVF kind of opening type techniques and positions. You were started to describe a position on the table that a patient might get into. Can we get into that just a little bit more and maybe talk about what the positioning might be? And let's say, for example, someone who has a right sciatica with a, with a posterior right disc herniation. Mm -hmm. Yep, sure. And you want to know more about progressions? Yeah, or just in terms of what the, oh, the open, offloading. Oh, the open. oh yes, yeah. offloading approach, yes. Again, offloading we use for pain relief. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, if someone comes in with severe sciatica, um, one of the things we, off, we should do, I guess, is usually just look at their active movement. So they might be standing, you'll see their antalgic positions, and you just get them to do flexion extension and lateral flexion to both sides. Now, with that, you can get an idea about whether the problem is a closing problem around the nerve root or an opening problem. Now, the common one is closing. So if they do extension and insulateral lateral flexion, such as Kemp's manoeuvre or their components, um, then they're clo closing movements. Now, if they provoke the sciatica and it's a lumbar problem, lumbar disc, disc problem, then the, the problem that person is that they're provoked with loading, so the treatment is unload, so we can yep. put them in a frame an opening position to relieve their pressure on their nerve roots, which we now know from the studies intraoperatively with blood flow testing with nerve roots, the blood flow improves when you do the opening technique in people with dyskinesia and dyskopathy. So that's the rationale. Open the frame for the right time in the right way yep. um, to unload their nerve root, give them relief of the sciatica, and they can obviously do it at home. But they so, have to be yeah. taught caref carefully, carefully yes. because they have to get their technique right. So in the case of our right sciatica patient, let's assume they have a closing problem. So they're going to get worsening of their symptoms by extension and laterally flexioning to the right side. What position are you going to get them on the table to open that uh, right frame? Yeah. Good. Okay. So if that's a right side of problem, open the right frame. And so they lie on their left side. Painful mm -hmm. side uppermost. We flex both hips to about 90 degrees, which produces posterior rotation of the pelvis, opens yeah. the, uh, it uh, flexes the lumbar spine and opens um, their frame in all, in, in all the areas. And then we make it unilateral by getting their legs um, over the side of the bed at 90 degrees and rotating their pelvis downward, uh, the upper part of their pelvis downward, and that produces lateral, contralateral lateral flexion. Yes. And so the combined movements are flexion, contralateral lateral flexion. It's a static one because we like to unload the nerve root to improve blood flow over time, but not for too long. We don't want to stretch the disc and hurt it. So we yeah. often limit it to about to about a minute and cycle that up to five or ten times in the first visit. And so for our right-sided sciatica patient, we've basically got them on their left side, hips uh, flexed at 90 degrees. Their feet then and lower limbs will be actually off the table or off the bed, but their knees off the side. are on the bed. Yep. Great. Yes, that's right. And they rotate it, their pelvis yes. rotates and opens. Yep. And so you'll do it for about a minute. And how many times typically for an offloading 
procedure would you be recommending? Um, it, it, it's influenced by the patient response. Now, if they get um, dramatic relief after a couple, I'm reluctant to do too many because yes. he, he, miracles often end up um, in the wrong place. I'm going to say end up in hell because sometimes miracles can be provoked. And yes. so because they might have a sensitive disc, I'm not too keen on big dramatic improvements in a technique or yeah. two for that one. But if yeah. but the, the, the desirable response is actually less leg pain in the position. And when yeah. they return to the neutral, it stays improved a bit. And you might repeat that five to ten times if it's progressively getting better and it's a moderate improvement. Well, that's yeah. the approach I would use. And we might review the straight leg raise or neurological status. Yep. I want to talk about nerve flossing. So this isn't quite nerve flossing, but where it's kind of in the same area, I guess. Well, what's the difference between nerve flossing and these IVF opening techniques? And can you give me an example of what you might use for a sciatica patient as far as nerve flossing is concerned? Yeah, okay. So <clears throat> nerve flossing always applies force to the nerve roots. Now, if a patient has severe pain, um, some people do quite well if you move the nerve but you don't apply tension to it. It's like mm. a soothing technique. Yeah. Um, and so some people do well, and that's one reason why nerve flossing has become very popular. And it's called that, nerve flossing. I personally don't like the term because I think it's too simple, but it is true, the flossing technique. Um, and, and so that's – but it still applies force. And it's so it's not really an unloading technique, and it's a higher progression than an unloading technique. And so you could do some nerve flossing, but it doesn't help. You could then do contralateral. You could even do a contralateral position and a bit of nerve flossing combined, or you could do some foramen opening and even contralateral neurodynamics with foramen opening. So you've got a, a couple of layers of yeah. possibilities for, the, for these techniques. Now, nerve flossing, great for some people, but not for others. And, and this, yes. this other stuff is, is particularly useful for the others as well. So an example of a nerve flossing might be if someone's sitting and does a sitting straight leg raise but at the same time extends their head, so that would allow, loosen it off at the uh, top, pull it down at the bottom, and theoretically the the, the cord and nervous system would move cordad in that situation. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's right. And then you reset the opposite. opposite. Right, great. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. I want to just, and we've talked about, obviously, there are um, IVF opening procedures. Sometimes we'll we'll need to, I suppose, do IVF closing procedures if that's the position that provides the relief in the test. Um, So it's not, we're not going to do the same thing for everyone. It's dependent on what the test, the test will tell us what to do with with our rehab and with our care. Yes, that's true. Um, we have a categorization of patient levels one, two, and three. Now, level one is severe pain, radiating pain, easily provoked, difficult to relieve. Um, and we call it level one patient and they need pain relief. So we'll do, we tend to do unloading techniques for those people, but, but then they graduate or even patient comes to your clinic, they can walk in. Okay. They've got some pain, but it's not too bad. Um, and then that's a level two patient, and we would start loading those or doing rehab type techniques, improve function. Um, now the high, the level three, that the, is a performance situation where optimization is critical, and that's where we look very care carefully at the interactions between MSK and nerve with movements and dyskinesias, and do manual techniques to combine them all. Firstly, to find out where the heck the problem is, because often these people have highly specific problems that are that are not easy to find. 
Um, and then when we find it, we'll, we'll teach the person how to move either with that problem or onto that problem, depending mm. on what progression they, they need. So it fits with the progressions. Fantastic. I want to go uh, and just take uh, in sort of closing up here, just give a, a simple scenario that's similar but a little bit different to what we've been talking about. And I want to talk about uh, just simple flexion and extension of the lumbar spine in the standing position. So yes. a person bends over to touch their toes, the IVFs bilaterally are going to open up, uh, but also the compression of the anterior part of the disc is going to push a posterior disc more posterior. So mm. my question is that, uh, where it, yes, it's opening the IVS, but it's also potentially aggravating the disc. And then in the reverse, if someone performs an extension, it's narrowing the IVF, so possibly making compression of the nerve root worse, uh, worse but it's also compressing the facets. So is that a facet, a sign of a facet problem or is that a sign of a, a disc problem? Can you just sort of tease that little one out? Yeah, like? so this, this is a really important, and I must say it's not always a very simple discussion, um, but I'll just start with a with a one misconception. When we use the term disc, that's actually a collection of functional units. It's not just one thing. And the functional units are obviously nucleus, vertebral bodies, and annulus. And they don't all function in the same way. Um, they, they collaborate and they work together, but they don't do the same thing. So when you flex, and this has been found in cadavers, asymptomatic subjects radiologically, people with disc hernia and spinal stenosis. So if you think of the, 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 the spectrum of models, it's actually been found to be the same with all the models. Um, when you flex, the, the, the nucleus can move back a little bit, but the annulus gets tighter because the back of the vertebral end plate separates Mm. And it, by tightening the annulus, the annulus can actually move forward. And right. so the, the, the movements of the annulus and the nucleus are different. And we think of nucleus movement, meaning the annulus must have moved back. So that should press on the nerve root. Yes. Um, but actually, it doesn't always do that. And that's also influenced by other factors, degenerative status, the stability of the segment, all sorts of things. And so if you look at a pressure study, which had been done, um, where they put a little transducer in the foramen, whilst the nucleus moves back, the pressure in the foramen and canal reduces in almost all models. And that's because the pressure in the foramen is more complex than just the disc behaviour. Um, and now if you've got a capacious nerve root canal or foramen, then the nerve root might be able to displace away from a hernia. Mm. Um, or if you've got a tight nervous system, flexion might pull the nerve root onto the disc more as you do a bowstringing technique flexion. Yeah. And, and so um, I would say generally, though, this well, what we do know is the studies show a reduction in pressure with flexion and increasing pressure in the canal or, uh, with extension and the frame as well, of course. So we use that as a as a as a way of evaluating how that nerve root tolerates pressure and de decompression with movement. And I guess regardless in the end of the biomechanics with those movements, you're still going to be considering well, what is the position of tolerance and when they're in a lot of pain, move in that position yep. of tolerance regardless. Um, absolutely. You know, um, I, I, I'm a scientist, as you know, and as well I've been a clinician for 40 years, but one of my hobbies is to try and connect the two because often they're discrepant. And uh, there's a there's a big secret and recognize don't tell anyone shh, <laughs> a big secret in in reconciling science and clinical practice is examine the patient. Shh. Yes. 
<laughs> big secret, big secret. All right, look, it's been a really uh, wonderful discussion. I know I've learned a lot, and I'm sure uh, the listeners on the ACA podcast will be very, very grateful for your insights uh, today, Michael. Good luck um, with your presentation at the Sports Symposium, um, and we'll be sure to, to put some links uh, so if people want to find out more about neurodynamics and the work uh, that you've done in that area, they can certainly do so. Thanks so much for being part of the ACA podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.